Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. As January winds down, I can't help but feel a bit more uplifted knowing that the days are gradually getting longer. There's still plenty of winter ahead, of course, but the increasing daylight brings a sense of hope. But before we close out this month, we have a lot to talk about. Here's what's coming up on today's show. I'm starting off with Dr. Prachi Sarvastava, an associate professor at Western University who specializes in education and global development. We're going to delve into the evolving landscape of post-secondary education in Canada, especially concerning international students. We'll discuss the recent cap on international study permits, the rising costs of tuition, discrimination issues, and the challenges related to scams and visa issues. It's a conversation that spans education policy, economics, and social justice. Anne Brody is back with her latest entertainment picks. We're looking at Four Daughters, a quasi-documentary about a Tunisian family's tragedy, and diving into the gossip-laden world of feud, Capote versus the Swans, and Nicole Kidman in Expats, both available on Prime. Next, I'm joined by Alison Stratton, co-author of Unleadership, Making Building Relationships Your Business. Allison and her husband, Scott Stratton, have been exploring business dynamics in an age of disruption, focusing on the power of relationships in marketing, sales, and branding. With the pandemic reshaping employer-employee relationships, Allison's insights on unleadership and its impact on workplace dynamics are more relevant than ever. Sheila Gallant-Halloran from Lush Life Travel joins me to discuss an exciting women's wellness cruise planned for October 2024. This river cruise sailing from Budapest to Prague is all about wellness on water, offering a unique opportunity for mothers, daughters, sisters, friends, and solo travelers to connect and rejuvenate. Finally, I'm speaking with Susan Fleming, an award-winning documentary filmmaker about her latest work, I Am the Magpie River, premiering on CBC's The Nature of Things. This documentary highlights the Magpie River in northern Quebec, recently granted legal personhood, and explores the collaboration between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people in this historic environmental conservation effort. So whether you're interested in education, entertainment, leadership, travel, or environmental conservation, today's show is packed with engaging and thought-provoking topics. Stay tuned for an enlightening episode of What She Said, right here on 105.9 The Region. first interview, I'm joined by Dr. Prachi Sarvastava, a tenured associate professor at Western University specializing in education and global development. Dr. Sarvastava is a respected voice in the field, contributing her expertise to organizations like UNICEF, UNESCO, and the World Bank. Our conversation today centers around the evolving landscape of post-secondary education in Canada, particularly focusing on international students. We'll discuss the recent cap on international study permits, the rising costs of tuition, issues of discrimination, and the challenges of scams and visa issues. 
It's a multifaceted topic that touches on education policy, economics, and social justice. Welcome back to the show, Prachi. Thanks, Candice, for having me back. Lots and lots of conversation about this top topic lately. So uh, let's start with the recent news. Canada plans to cap the number of international study permits by 35%. So how do you see this impacting the landscape of post-secondary education in Canada? That's right. The cap has just been uh, introduced by the Minister of Immigration in Canada. Um, it's, you know, it's it's a measure that I think has been instituted because there really was not a very cohesive plan um, in terms of expanding international um, education and international students to Canada uh, when the government launched the international education strategy in 2019. So where they launched the strategy 2019 to 2024. And in that was uh, a pretty um, extensive plan. And I think, you know, there's two things. The first thing is to understand that that is a positive strategy to have um, skilled to have skilled people to train them here to retain them here for um, our country's benefit. It's it's actually a very um, interesting way of filling some of our labor market gaps, but it's also a way of really revitalizing our own our population. The issue with that is that by having such um, strong growth. And we've seen international student growth in Canada for almost the last 10 years. Every year since about 2015, we've seen increases other than in 2020 because of the pandemic. But what that means is that we need to have a cross-sectoral support for international students coming. Um, And at present, they constitute about 2% of Canada's population. It's a, it's a significant number. It's a good, it's a really potentially good way of revitalizing our economy. Uh, they contribute about $23 billion to Canada's economy. Wow. It's much higher than aviation, than auto labor parts, you know, than, than, than industrial sectors that we, um, think uh, contribute, actually international students contribute much more. So it's, they aren't a drain. What makes the problem a problem is when we don't have concerted supports for population growth. And this is what it is. It's population growth, which could have, which could have been a managed population growth because it was fully dependent on government rollouts in terms of permits at the provincial level it's fully dependent on governments on provincial governments to have a higher education system that would cater to the specifics of having more people within their institutions and i think that's really the key what are the issues around that so a lot of the uh, focus has been on housing for example that um it's 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 contributed to increases in uh, unsustainable housing, increases in housing prices going up, but that's only part of the story because st- students coming are not guaranteed housing by, by the institutions in the most part. So that creates um, stresses in local housing markets. That could be a managed. That could have been a managed issue if the government 
is releasing a number uh, is 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 going to be releasing a number of study permits and if it's going to be done in a phased way then you need to put in those kinds of supports and 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 we didn't see that happen and so now we're seeing the effects of that over you know having this this isn't a problem that just materialized this year uh the number of uh like we said has of course we've had the most number of international students uh this year and last year than we've had previously but it didn't materialize this year it's a cumulative issue so of course we need to think about how that actually plays out in society and then the final i did Sorry, I was going to say as well, you know, and in this really sort of polarized environment we have in this country, international students become an easy scapegoat. They are not creating the housing crisis. I mean, probably I would say more creating the housing crisis would be people buying up investment properties. So let's not blame the international students for this. Absolutely. And 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 let's also understand that higher education is actually um, it's it's considered uh, part of trade. I, I think people need to understand because, because we're fortunate in Canada that most of our, uh, at least our universities, most of them are public universities. We have a relatively decent, you know, sector of public colleges, although one could argue, you know, looking at the different provinces that there's more privatized provision of colleges, for example, in Ontario than if we were to compare Ontario to Quebec, for example. But, um, but because we think of it in a more public fashion, we don't realize that actually international education is regulated or has or, or is part of the World Trade Organization agreements on trade. So this is seen as a commercial sector. And in fact, for countries like the UK, Canada and Australia, these are the top three destinations for international students. It's seen as an export, right? So when we think about it from that way, we understand that it's a multi-sectoral issue. If it's been, if, if it's being seen as a tr- sector of trade, then the value put on that is very different. It's not just about, it should be from my perspective, because I'm a professor of education. It should be about how do we develop human, you know, how do we develop our, our skills in society? How do we allow people the opportunity for a better life? And how does that contribute to Canada's uh, betterment? We know that from all economic studies, having migration and economic and economic migration in particular is, 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 is inherently beneficial. It's really beneficial for the, for, 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 for the countries and it is beneficial for the human beings that are involved. But to, to, but to have that as seeing it as a purely commercial, it's, I wouldn't say it's purely commercial, but to have a commercial driver behind it without the social supports that are required, when you're entering a society in Canada now, which is more economically, um, you know, strained than it would have been earlier, without those supports, we're seeing the same, the international students are suffering the same issues that all our population is suffering. Right. And, and, and I do want to put the term our into this conversation because once they arrive in Canada, they're part of our, it's our population. It's part of our population, all of us. And they are suffering the same things. The problem is that they're here on very specific conditions and, and, and often they don't have the social networks, the long term histories, understanding to navigate the system. That's not there. So they're suffering the same thing, food insecurity. Going into food banks now, um, 
students, graduate students and students generally in, in Canada are now accessing uh, food banks at rates that we've never seen. And certain food banks, they're 30% of the population that use those services. We've never seen that before. It's not just international students, it's students in general, all students. So we've never seen that. Food prices, housing insecurity, we're seeing um, isolation, we're seeing mental health problems, we're seeing difficulties in being able to access work. These are all things that we're all suffering, but they have specific issues because of the fact that they're here on very particular conditions and in a country that is new to them and very young. These are very young people. We have to understand they're 18, 19, 20, 21. They're very young people. So so we need to understand that as well. Okay. We're talking with Dr. Prachi Sarvastava about the state of post-secondary education in Canada and more specifically Ontario and Quebec. And we'll be right back after this break. with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. So play it smart and play it cool. Okay, we're back with Dr. Prachi Srivastava. We're discussing uh, the state of post-secondary education. Uh, Prachi, Quebec has been in the news a lot lately. Uh, How do you think what they're doing is going to affect Quebec's universities and their appeal to international students, actually even students across the country? Yeah, I think, you know, my my feeling is that the education policy for uh, English language universities in Quebec is the story of the year of the, you know, of the last year. And it's going to have lasting repercussions um, for, you know, the, the idea is that domestic students and international students who are, you know, domestic students out, out of province and international students are going to be paying much higher fees than they were before. And al- already the fees for out-of-province students and international students were higher than um, than Quebec students, which tends to be the case all over the country. But now this policy is being tar- is targeting only the English language universities, of which there are only three in Quebec. Three out of 19 universities are English language universities, McGill and Concordia, both in Montreal, and, and Bishops in Sherbrooke. Now, what that does in terms, you know, it's, it's been seen as a highly regressive and, 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 and a punitive policy because the first uh, iteration of, of this was out in October and the minister at the time gave some flimsy uh, reason on the basis of helping to increase funding for the whole, for, for, for actually the French language university sector, which made no sense because then what, what they were going to do, the proposal was to take that extra income and, and devolve it to the French language universities. When we think about it again, there's only three universities, majority of international out of province students would go to the, to one, which is McGill. And when we think about really how would that really help the, the context, this then speaks to, uh, funding constraints. It's going to punish those three universities. The president of McGill has come out very strongly to say it's going to punish Canada. It's going to punish Quebec 
because it will put a barrier for these skilled, for, for these types of skilled students to want to come. The bigger issue is, um, domestic student mobility. What does that mean for our students from the rest of the country who want to study in, in Quebec, right? It, it's, it's, it's highly, um, in, uh, uh, inegalitarian for that to happen. The, the other part that's connected to this, and this goes beyond Quebec, is the funding constraints to higher education generally in Canada. A, lo- a lot of what we're seeing now is the result of governments, provincial governments, not funding higher education to the point that they should when we are expanding. We're expanding domestic students and we're spending, and we're expanding international students. We have many more programs now than we used to in the past. And yet funding has not kept, uh, kept up in pace. Ontario has, has, has the least amount of proportional funding for higher education. What that has done, and this gets into questions around scamming and what we're seeing now really affecting international students. What, what instead has happened is that there have been private public partnership agreements that have been set up, for example, with colleges. We can say with colleges. I don't want to scapegoat them, but we have seen that where a public college can set up a public private partnership with a private entity. That private entity could be profit making. And sometimes they haven't even gone through the programs, haven't even gone through quality assurance. Uh, they've expanded in some cases enrollments by 10, 20, 30, 40, 50%. And they're only catering to international students. And when the students arrive, they find that they don't have the facilities. They don't have the housing. Sometimes the programs don't run. And there, and, and it's really just a way to increase income. And the reason that those colleges or, or those institutions are feeling that they have to do this is because the funding from the provinces has decreased to such a level that there are many institutions that are on the, that, that are on economic, um, you know, their economic viability is seriously being challenged. Some of them, even some universities are declaring that, you know, if something doesn't change soon, um, then they will have to maybe even go down the road of bankruptcy, which is shocking. But it isn't just a question of rationalizing how universities use their current resources. The universities have said we can rationalize, we can maybe make a saving uh, of 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 a, you know of of what we can. But the independent report that was come out from the commission here in Ontario said that the number one reason that there isn't enough financing for universities, at least in Ontario, is because the province has not financed it. And it would take up to $4 billion for a number of years to, to even match the shortfall with other provinces in, in Canada. So this is a long, you know, what we are seeing is the culmination of a number of things. The first is underfinancing of education for a number of years. Um, the second is a housing crisis, an economic crisis not produced by the international students or by students. It's a much larger issue. Not having proper supports and not managing population growth, however that happens in a phased manner. This could have been a planned population growth technique, skilled population growth technique for Canada, and it wasn't managed in a, in, in, in a multi-sectoral manner with immigration, with labor, with, with employment and with the higher education sector. That's how really, and with global affairs, Canada, that's how really it should be uh, managed. It is a huge issue. And someday I hope that we can have a conversation where they are managing education that's actually about education and not about scoring political points or underfunding 
a very, very important uh, institution in our country. So Prachi, as always, thank you so much for joining me and with all of your insights. Uh, we'll have you back again soon. Yes. Thank you very much, Candice, for having me on the show. Joining me now for Saturday Night at the Movies is Anne Brody. And Anne, uh, another big week for really great shows and entertainment. Yes, indeed, which is really nice for the end of, of January. It's usually a wasteland. I don't know. This year it's been better. But I'd like to start with four daughters from Kathur Benhania um, in Tunisia. Actually, he had to flee to, uh, she had to flee to um, Saudi Arabia because one of one of the reasons being the film, but it's a quasi documentary. So they have a family of women. Uh, some of them are actors, some aren't, but it's about the way women are made to suffer under the system that they live in. Um, you know, there's a lot of rape. There's a lot of, and one of the daughters actually disappeared. They were told she was devoured by wolves, but it, was that she was believed to have been worshiping Satan. So she was killed. Um, so it's a very, very powerful film. Uh, and the the way it's made with these uh, quasi documentary style is just astounding. I highly recommend it. Tough subject matter, but, you know, we need to see things that happen elsewhere in the world. And it's in theaters. I, I agree. I mean, if we don't know what's happening in other countries, how can we be aware if that starts to creep in here? Yeah. Uh, so yeah. we do need to learn uh, what is happening around us. All right. I have to tell you, I watched the trailer for Feud, Capote versus the Swans. <laughs> this is crazy. It's, it's juicy stuff. Juicy. And I remember when all this came out and I've got the book answered prayers and uh, anyway. So, yes. So this is the second, um, sorry, I don't know if it's the second or the third uh, uh, outing of the Feud series from FX, but it's a brilliant, it, it covers all the famous feuds in, in pop culture. And there was Betty Davis and um, before, and it's really fun. So anyway, we have real life figures, Lee Radzewell, Slim Keith, CeCe Zest, Babe Paley, and of course, Capote, who's played brilliantly by Tom Hollander, who looks like him. He's short. He's very fat all of a sudden. And he has that delivery that Truman Capote had that is, I can't do, but <laughs> if you see it, you'll know. Um, and of course, Capote was their, uh, their sort of master in a way. They were very beholden to him. He he entertained them so well, and he had lots of gossip about other people. But he was also listening to all their confessions about what happened in their lives. And then he turned around and he did the unthinkable. He published it in an article in Esquire magazine, and then later in a book. Very damning, very humiliating, and they turned on him as well they should. Uh, you know, betrayed as big as you can get. I haven't seen the whole thing, but I will. I mean, it's a teeny bit. 
it's a teeny bit trashy, but I like it. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes trashy is good for the soul, I got to tell you. So, and and I, I just think it's worth pointing out uh, that the female leads in this, Callista Flockhart, Diane Lane, uh, Naomi Watts, Chloe, uh, how do you say her last name? Savini? Uh, Savini. Yeah. And, and um, uh, Demi Moore is in it too. And, Je- sort of a, and Jessica yeah. Lange. Yeah, as the mother, wow. as the as Truman Capote's crazy mother, which sort of explains the way he is, why he is. It explains everything. All right. You know, when, when he was little, his mother, they lived in the deep south. She took him up to New York to become part of the social elite. And it never happened. It, it embittered him, her. And of course, she passed that on. So it's just, and the masked ball, the, the black and white masked ball, it features very well. It's really fun. I have to admit, I am looking forward to this one. Um, All right, let's talk about expats. Yes, that's an interesting thing. It's based on a book, uh, The Expatriates by Janice K. Lee, and it looks at um, foreigners living in Hong Kong. uh, And it's an unusual presentation of the way they live. It's a tight community, um, and they, no one's happy. None of them are happy or content. So Nicole Kidman's son has been kidnapped. Her nanny let go of the child's hand for a a moment and he was gone. So this has changed her personality. She's so bitter and angry, of course, naturally. And then there's a girl, a local girl, Mercy is becomes pregnant by Jack Houston's character who's married. Uh, The wife knows about it and she has her revenge. I mean, it's, when people get together, it can it it can turn right, and this is all about the way it turns. So, they make plans to leave, but can they do it? Very interesting. Lots of fun and a little bit tough. Another interesting thing is that the entire early chapters are set in a hellacious typhoon over Hong Kong. So every scene. Is either outside in the rain and winds, or you can see it through the windows, and it's very ominous. So that sort of cements the way life is going for these people. And, and where is that? Where can people catch expats? That in theater? That or? is on Prime Video. Prime, excellent, excellent. Yeah. I love those at-home movies where I don't have to leave the house. So right, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Anne. Thanks so much. Uh, you have right. these and more over on what she said talk.com, and we'll see you next week. We'll see you next week. Oh, I'm having so much fun. Well, Bobby, we're just getting started. Oh, I love you, Ken. More with Candace Sampson and What She Said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. I'm unstoppable today. In this next interview, we're diving into the world of leadership, or rather unleadership, with Allison Stratton, co-author of Unleadership, Making Building Relationships Your Business. Allison, along with her husband and partner, Scott Stratton, have spent the last 15 years exploring the dynamics of business in an age of disruption. Their focus, the power of relationships in marketing, sales, and branding. In a time when the pandemic has reshaped the employer-employee relationship, 
Allison's insights are more relevant than ever. Let's find out what unleadership means and how it can mend and strengthen workplace relationships. Welcome to What She Said, Allison. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. I feel like it's been forever that I've been trying to get you on the show. So I, I'm thrilled that we could finally have this conversation. So can you explain the concept of unleadership and how it differs from traditional leadership models? Absolutely. So this is the fourth book in the Unseries, which we're calling it, Unmarketing, Unselling, Unbranding, and now Unleadership. And adding the un to the front of those terms has really always been about two things. It's been about relationships. So putting connections and people, really humans, <laughs> at the heart of your business, at the heart of your business choices, at the heart of your marketing. And the other part of it was thinking beyond silos. So when, when we first started writing on marketing, it was this, this idea of that marketing shouldn't be a department, that it, all of your company is marketing. You're always marketing. And when we released it, it was really the beginning of sort of this boom of social media, of influencers, of this idea of personal branding. And so and marketing was about relationships and also stepping out of silos. And when we got to unleadership, that was so very important. First of all, that you don't know if you're leading people if you don't have awareness and connection. That leadership is about the relationships that you build with people. And in order to lead, you have to have awareness and you have to have connection with people. Otherwise, you're not leading. You might have the title that people think that you're a leader. You might have some power. You might have some control. But you aren't really leading people unless you have relationships, unless you're focusing on building relationships with people. So we really wanted to make sure we weren't writing for CEOs. So we weren't writing for people who are already at the head of their company. Um, we wanted to write for people who were leading companies, but maybe figured that their tools and their tricks that they used to use in leadership all of a sudden weren't working anymore. And whether that was because of disruption, maybe from the pandemic, more they were now leading hybrid teams, even just age, just new generations of workers coming into the workforce. Being a leader has to be active. You, you can't use, you just don't arrive at leadership. You have to always be working at it. And that requires con, like kind of continuous learning and challenging the things that you've been doing, the things you've always done, and sort of stepping into new challenges and new learning. And so that was sort of where we started. And it has been amazing to see where the research and the conversations have taken us. I think your timing on this book is interesting. Now, of course, I, can, I can't speak from experience because I've been self-employed. So if I have a beef with the boss, it's myself. But <laughs> uh, just from what I've been reading and sort of observing, it seems like there's this widening chasm between employers and employees. Um, do you think the pandemic shifted those dynamics or was this coming for a long time and the pandemic just sort of rushed it along? I think the pandemic just really revealed disparities more than anything. I think when all of us were sort of forced to be working remotely, we realized like, oh my, okay, one second, like this is actually very challenging. This is actually very different. You know, the way that meetings used to be led, it, it doesn't seem to be working. Like, I don't feel like it's, it's unconnecting in the same way. And everyone had these experiences working from home. And, and going through quite a traumatic experience of this global pandemic, it was quite scary. And a lot of people sort of like had time to sort of rethink their purpose, rethink what's important to them. Many of us, especially working parents, had to make very difficult decisions about childcare, some of us about elder care. 
you know, and, and so I think when we return to work, whatever that looked like, whether it was a few days a week or over Zoom or we were immediately back inside, maybe we were essential workers and we were at work the whole time. Those challenges became almost impossible to ignore. And I think that people just recognize that we should be doing something different. And also when we reconsider our priorities like that and we come back to work, we're like, I liked being able to sit with my children and read. I'd like to be able to run errands for my elderly parent and be able to take care of my family. I liked being able to connect with my community more because we were outside in the street, like, you know, all of a sudden finding friends in our neighborhood when maybe we weren't as used to that anymore. And I think it's a good thing because I think that these disparities always existed. I know many of us who are working parents know that those disparities, we, we've had those challenges and, and many people. And I think that it just highlighted that and really brought them to light. I know for a lot of like Black Canadians working from home, they were away from the stress of racism at work and then returning. So all of these things, I think, just sort of like brought it to light. I think also technology, innovation and technology. I know you've had Amber Mack on the show. We also interviewed her in the book. And Amber talked just brilliantly about innovation and how quickly some of these things are happening. And when this pace is so intense, we we rush to try and make sure we're caught up. But we, our brains are... Nowhere near as fast as the innovation that we're working in. And so I think all of those things together have just been a bit of a reckoning um, with the world of work. And something I like to see, but is uh, certainly challenging. And it's been challenging for leaders. So a lot of people were, you know, feeling like it used to feel like I was connecting with my team. You know, we were at work, like we were talking along the water cooler, we were connected. But was that real connection? And if now, because you don't have, you know, uh, people in the seats in the office, you don't feel like you're engaging, maybe you weren't as connected as a leader as you thought you were. It's very easy when you're in a position of authority to, to uh, think that you're doing a better job because people work for you. They have to, you know, they have to kind of go along with it. And I think the pandemic revealed that sometimes that's not really true, that that connection isn't as real as people thought it was. I love that you've highlighted that you have 27 women in this book, uh, a few of which have been featured on the show, Faye Johnston, um, Julie, Julius Lalonde, Amber Mack, incredible women. Um, I'm curious, even you know, amongst the men, was there a sort of a common thread you found between these leaders? I found that um, in interviewing everyone, I was really amazed with these three characteristics. It was humility. I don't think anyone I interviewed uh, didn't say, are you sure you want to interview me? Like these are leaders of companies. These are people who, who run huge organizations in Canada. And everyone was like, you sure, Allison? Like I can, did you mean my boss or like, you know, and so there's this humility, I think. And I think that really speaks to the fact that leadership that's based on relationships, you have to be in relationship with the people you're leading. And you can't do that if you don't have that humility and that feeling like you belong with everybody you're working with This sort of more collaborative environment. Uh, the other thing was curiosity. Uh, curiosity, asking questions. Why? Uh, why do we do things a certain way? Why don't we do it differently? And curiosity, unfortunately, at work can be a privilege that's reserved for people with more time, you know, to be sent on conferences and have time to read. And really, 
what I found wasn't so much that leaders were curious, although they were, but they also facilitated curiosity as like an organizational value. Like they didn't, they weren't just curious people. They believed in the value of curiosity and they opened up opportunities for challenge, for questions, for differences of opinion that really brought their leadership and made it alive and made people want to be following them, which is what real leadership is. And I would say the other one was definitely empathy, which I think is related really to the other two. But, you know, humility is really about ourselves. Like, do we think we're too good or or are we ready to do the work, get our hands dirty, do everything that we've asked other people to do? And empathy was really about that connection. So do you care about the outcomes for the people that work for you? Do you care about the outcomes for the clients you serve, the the radio show listeners who are listening? Like, you have to care about what they want. Otherwise, you're missing what leadership is, which is that concern, those values that that you base your work on. So those were really the three big characteristics. It's incredible. And I love uh, that you've really focused on leadership as sort of a verb and not a title. And that you don't necessarily need to be leading the company. You can be a leader any at any sort of level within the company. I want people to be able to find this book and obviously connect with you and Scott. You guys are always sharing great stuff online on LinkedIn, um, you know, your your Twitter. Well, are you still on Twitter? No, I haven't seen you on Twitter in a while. Tell me where you are. You can learn more about the book if you go to unleadershipbook.com. It'll take you to uh, all kinds of information. Uh, it's available for pre-order and is out the end of February. And on our site, too, you'll find lists of all the incredible women who we've interviewed, some who've been your guests, and other Canadian women. To me, it's really a great book full of stories. I wanted to capture the the months that I spent interviewing these leaders was incredibly impactful. I went in thinking I might get a few quotes, and instead I came out with these narratives, these stories about what leadership means, how we become leaders, what shapes it, and also incredible advice for aspiring leaders and people wanting to grow in their leadership. And I wanted to take that feeling I had as someone who had spent the time with them and really put it in the book. And so the chapters are narratives written in the voices of the people who I interviewed, which I created from highlights from the interview. And um, my hope really is that people will read it and get the feeling that I had in speaking to these people, which is to re- that they really opened their stories up in very personal ways and also shared lessons about how to motivate, how to inspire, how to educate in ways that are actually heard and embraced that were just invaluable to me. And I'm hoping that readers will get the same feeling when they read the stories as well. But Well, I know I'm going to go hunt down the rest of those women featured in the book and get them on the show. And I, I thank you so much for joining me today, Allison. Uh, and we'll have you back again soon. Awesome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be exploring a unique travel opportunity that combines luxury, wellness, and the spirit of sisterhood in this next interview. Sheila Gallant-Halloran from Lush Life Travel is here to talk about an exciting women's wellness cruise planned for October 2024. This river cruise sailing from Budapest to Prague is designed as a wellness on water experience perfect for mothers, daughters, sisters, and friends, 
or even solo travelers looking to connect with others. Sheila will share insights into this rejuvenating journey and why such vacations are vital for women's well-being. Welcome to What She Said, Sheila. Thank you, Candice. It's wonderful to be here. I'm a fan of your show, and I'm so thrilled to be able to join you as a guest. Honestly, you sent this information through to me, and I'm obsessed. So can you tell us more about the concept behind uh, this Wellness on Water cruise and what inspired you to create this experience? Well, I've been dealing with a lot of uh, women travelers and and solo women over the years, and uh, I didn't realize that the business I was booking or the travel experiences I was booking tended to go towards a wellness travel. And to me, wellness is really about self-care and and living healthy. Um, I won this award from Virtuoso, which is my uh, global luxury travel network, about wellness travel. I went, oh, I never really thought of myself as a wellness expert. But when I went back and looked at the sorts of trips I was booking for people, I realized it was more soft adventure and wellness where people were looking to take care of themselves and focus on getting away from their work and responsibilities and carving out some time for themselves. And so I started to look at that a bit more. Uh, I always work with river cruising and love river cruising. I took a big group of women on a river cruise uh, just before the world shut down uh, with the pandemic. And that was brutal three years that we've all lived through. But as we come through it, you know, people are focusing on, okay, now that I've survived, how do I thrive? And how do I focus on me? And, you know, as women, we all take care of everyone else except ourselves. So now it's really about focusing on some self-care and realizing you deserve this. Absolutely. And can you highlight some of the key features that make this cruise a unique wellness retreat? Well, it's really, it's first of all, it's a Danube, which is fantastic. And we're going to go to Prague as well. So those iconic spots of, of Vienna and, and uh, Prague and Budapest that you're going to visit. So the destination is fantastic. But what makes it wellness is really uh, my partnering with Uniworld, uh, which is the company I took the large women's group previously. So I have a relationship with them. I love their focus on sustainability, both food and and the places you're visiting. And I thought, why not have sustainability focusing on the women so that you're focusing on making the place better, but you're also focusing on on making yourself better so that to sustain you. Um, It's carving out some time that you can get away from your work and your responsibilities at home and just have a time to slow down. And, and really focus on self-care and be pampered. I mean, Uniworld partners with the Savoir Beds of England, if you know that brand, they're the best beds in the world. So you can just come on board and lie on these $50,000 beds and just see Europe uh, sail past your window, or you can be active. And, and Uniworld has a great wellness on water program that has uh, sunrise yoga and healthy light, uh, healthy light menus, living light, uh, traveling light menus, but they also have farm to cuisine. So, you know, farm to table cuisine where you can have the best food and the best alcohol and wine if you choose, or you can choose healthy and, or you can mix it up. 
but it's really to just say, I'm going to get away, focus on me, reconnect with other people. And by having a group of women have that sistership come, uh, sisterhood come together and just kind of carve out some time to reconnect with who you are and, and focus on you going forward. I imagine there are women listening to this right now who are thinking, I can't wait to grab my besties and jump on this cruise, this river cruise. But there are solo travels, solo travelers out there who might be listening and might have some trepidation about jumping onto a river cruise solo. So can you explain how the solo share program works? Sure. I have uh, some solos that don't have company. Um, and, you know, river cruising is one of those things that that it's very friendly for solo travelers anyway. Uh, it, uh, you're having uh, uh, people come together. It's a very intimate experience. You know, there's 130 people on board this ship. It's not like doing a mega ship with 6,000 people where you're in a traveling city, right? And that can be very intimidating, especially for solo traveling. But it's already a more intimate experience. You're going to see people. You're going to meet new people. There are no assigned tables. You can come and, and sit with people one day and sit with other people the next. So I wanted it to be uh, friendly for moms and daughters, friends, and everybody to come, but also to appeal to the solo traveler. I work with my partners, Uniworld, to have a reduced solo supplement on a number of cabins. So you can come by yourself and have this reduced solo supplement, a cabin by yourself. But if there are women who really uh, would like to share a cabin, then we have a solo share program where we can match you up with someone as well. I just can't get enough of this cruise. I'm, I really want to do a river cruise. It's top of my bucket list because I just hear they are fabulous. So, you know, for people who are listening and really, really intrigued, let's end this interview on a high note. And please share where you go on this cruise because the destinations are magical. It's really fantastic. I mean, we're going to start in Budapest. So, you know, you're going to see things like St. Stephen's uh, Cathedral. You'll go to the great markets in Budapest. We're going to go on to Vienna, which is perhaps my favorite city in the world. You know, the history and the music. And Vienna, you could go to the Belvedere Museum and see all the work of Klimt, or you could go to the Vienna Opera House. And then we're going to cruise on through the Waco Valley if you're into wine and enjoy all of that experience, and, and then go on to Prague. So you're going to see all these iconic cities of, of Europe, and all from a moving boutique hotel room. So you don't have to pack and unpack. Uh, you get on board the ship and for seven nights, you're in this moving hotel room that's going to take you to these iconic spots and you're going to be fed it with the best food and wine. And you can exercise if you choose, or you can just relax and let it all flow over you and immerse yourself in the destination. It's, it's going to be a great, uh, experience. I've done the Danube River Cruise several times. I still go back and I always experience it. So for those that have say, that might say, Oh, I've already done the Danube. You've not done the Danube with Uniworld and you've not done it with other women. And the Danube always inspires. It's just, you can go to Vienna and Budapest again and again and in Prague and just explore these uh, beautiful cities. You know, everything from in Prague, there's a John Lennon wall. You can go, uh, 
uh, stand in front of this wall of Imagine with the John Lennon picture and and go to different uh, uh, spots that uh, revere him. And then, of course, you know, it doesn't mention the Charles Bridge and all the the astrological clock and all the wonderful walkable town that is Prague and just explore it. It's just going to be fantastic. I'm convinced. I'm convinced. And I, I mean, while I have not done a river cruise, I can say that uh, traveling with a group of women is just one of the best things you can do. So Sheila, if people want to know more, uh, learn more about the cruise, how can they connect with you? You can go to my website, lushlife.ca, and you can uh, find, uh, I have links there with all the information. I have contact forms. I have pricing and details. But of course, just send me an email, Sheila at lushlife.ca, and we'll schedule a call and I can t- talk through all the wonderful things that we're going to do on this cruise. And obviously, I want as many people as possible to join us because it's it's all about self-care, care, right? And 2024 should be the year of you. Thank you so much for joining me today, Sheila. Thanks, Candice. It's a pleasure. I got my 45 on so More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. joined by Susan Fleming, an award-winning documentary filmmaker whose latest work, I Am the Magpie River, is set to premiere on CBC's The Nature of Things. This documentary explores the Magpie River in northern Quebec, a pristine, almost 300-kilometer-long, world-class whitewater destination, which has recently been granted legal personhood. This historic decision, a collaboration between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, marks a significant shift in how we view and protect our natural world. Susan, with her expertise in showcasing the beauty and wonder of nature, brings this remarkable story to life. Let's delve into the implications of this legal precedent and what it means for the future of environmental conservation. Susan, welcome to what she said. Hi, thank you for letting me be here. I am so excited to talk about this. This is very cool. So can you start by telling us about the Magpie River and what makes it so unique and worthy of protection? So the Magpie River is one of the last wild free-flowing rivers in northern Quebec, and it is spectacular. Um, It starts at the headwaters of Labrador and Quebec and flows all the way down through pristine boreal forests. It cuts through, you know, large swaths of rock. Uh, waterfalls. It just tumbles and tumbles to, it meets the Gulf of St. Lawrence. And it's a remarkable river, not just in terms of how you know beautiful it is, how pretty untouched it is, but it's it's significant to the Innu people. It's part of the territory of the Innu of Ukunichit in northern Quebec, and it's a, a celebrated part of their lands. A long, long history, really important. The Innu Sea um, the river, the rocks, the land that surround it as, as their ancestors. Um, they're very committed to protecting this river. And the concept of granting legal personhood to a natural phenomena is quite revolutionary. So can you explain what this means and how it came about for the Magpie River? So illegal personhood is a really new concept and quite an incredible one. And it's been catching on around the globe. Canada joins an elite set of countries like Bolivia, 
Brazil, Ecuador, New Zealand, Australia, and now Canada that have granted legal personhood to uh, phenomena of nature. And so what legal personhood does is it grants the river the right to, for this, for the magpie, to be polluted, to run uninterrupted, um, to not have its natural diversity affected, um, and the right to sue. And that's a real biggie because it means that the river has a voice in the Canadian courts. And that the guardians are appointed by um, the indigenous and non-indigenous people who fought to protect the river. There's several guardians. and They will represent the river in court. And so the, the river having, it doesn't mean it's going to win in court, but it has voice. And that's a really new thing. And your documentary really highlights the collaboration between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people in this legal battle, which is delightful to see. So could you share more about this partnership and its significance in achieving this really historic decision? And it's the first time in the world that non-Indigenous and Indigenous folks have joined together to gain legal personhood or the rights of nature for a natural phenomenon. So this is a really big deal. And I'm really proud it happened in Canada. I think it's quite incredible. Um, and what it means is that there was this, the, the place the, the river runs through is the Inu territory, but it's also in Mingani, um, the municipality of Mingani in Northern Quebec, which is the size of Ireland. Like it's a really big area. And so the mayor and the, the folks on the council in Mingani and the um, council from the Ikenichit of uh, the Inu of, of Ukunichit joined together and passed these measures through um, the local court system, the, the regional court system in Quebec, and through, I have to read this because it is quite, it's one of those things that's just a hard thing to explain. So it was joint um, parallel resolutions. The first was adopted by the Inu Council of Ukunichit, followed by the Mangani Regional County Municipality. And so those two things joined forces, and the, in, the Inu support has led to world support through the UN, which passed resolutions to support Indigenous rights. So in fact, there's a lot of weight behind these two um, groups joining together, and it gives us both Canadian and world protection. So it's, a, it's quite an achievement. What, what challenges then did you face in capturing the essence of the Magpie River? It's not like you're having a conversation and interviewing the river <laughs> and it's a surrounding ecosystem for your documentary. You must, it must have been a challenging shoot. It was both a challenging shoot and a challenging film to figure out because there's not, you know, some animal with a cute face and furry ears that you can, you know, portray and get people to fall in love with. So as a nature filmmaker, it was a very conceptual kind of film to, to, kind of attack and figure out how to bring the points across. But the passion of the people was just so infectious that it was easy to just interview them and tell their stories and then show the beauty of the river. And it just all came together in this wonderful way. But it is a tough river to get to. It's a tough river to paddle. It's class three, four, and five white water. You know, National Geographic named it one of the top paddling destinations in the world. There's a reason. I've paddled it several times. It's not easy, um, but it's worth it. It's just you fly in by helicopter or float plane. And if you're doing it in, you know, any of the summer, spring, fall seasons, um, the only there's only one way and it's down the river. You have to take that as your thoroughfare because it's thick, thick spruce forest. You can't get through it. Um, so we helicoptered in with hundreds and hundreds of pounds of gear and large crews. And we all went down the river 
and we went down together and it was really an incredible experience. And I, I felt so lucky because you're so aware that so few people have got to experience this. And the whole crew was buoyant despite, you know, incredible adversity. We were all buoyant because it was just such an incredible experience. And we went back several times in the winter and skidooed and snowshoed in negative 40 weather when we were so cold and the wind was so strong, you could barely stand up. And we had the same feeling of just we're the luckiest ducks alive. So it was a tough shoot. It was really tough planning, um, but worth it. Like if you have a chance to go to the Magpie, take it. It's it's really something. Fabulous. I will put a link to that uh, uh, in the blog post that goes out on Mondays on whatshesaidtalk.com. And I thank you so much for joining me today. Ah, my pleasure. That's it for What She Said this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. You can also catch me on TikTok at Candace Said. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to catch past episodes and extended podcasts. I'll be back next week with another What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.